with us for the first time, uh, we want to welcome you and thank you for joining us. We're not going to embarrass you and have you stand up and say anything in public, but we do want to acknowledge you. So if you're visiting with us for the first time, uh, if you just raise your hands, there's some young men who are going to bring to you a welcome card and a uh, little information for you to fill out for us, if you don't mind. Um, we'd invite you to complete that welcome card for us and give it to one of the brothers at the end of the service this morning so we can get to know you by name. And we especially, if your hands are up, we have a special invitation for you. We want you to stick around after the service as we have potluck. You didn't know this by the church name, but this is a Baptist church, which means that the first article of faith is thou shalt have chicken after service. So stick around with us uh, and join us, join us for potluck. Uh, we're glad that you have come. Uh, also, I hope you can tell this already, but we, we don't take ourselves seriously, um, but we do take Christ seriously. Uh, we, we are people in need, uh, and we have a Savior who meets that need. So we, we gather together this morning to point away from ourselves and to point toward Christ. And we, we pray that as we worship this morning, that that's exactly what you find yourself doing, is looking toward Christ. Well, we, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, we've come to that portion of the service where we try to spend some extended time in God's Word. Uh, yes, that word extended was meant literally. Uh, <laughs> extended time in God's word. Uh, you may not have a Bible. If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hand and one of the brothers will bring you a Bible and we'd be happy for you to follow along. In fact, we believe you'll get more out of the sermon this morning if you'll follow along in God's word. This morning we're going to be thinking, uh, as I said a moment ago, about the fact that God saves. That God saves. It's a simple sentence with profound implications, particularly if you have people in your life whom you love who are not yet saved, who are not yet Christians, which means that when we say saved, it means they have not yet escaped the judgment of God coming against the world. If you have loved ones in your life that you you recognize, haven't yet escaped God's coming judgment, then there's probably little more in life that's important to you than the fact that they do find this way of escape, that in fact that they are rescued, that they are saved from God's wrath. And the tempter will tempt you to think that God's done saving. You've prayed for them, you've shared with them, you've agonized with them, you have maybe even tried to beat them into the kingdom. They're not saved. And you called the pastor, and you had the pastor come over to the house, because he's the pastor. He'll get everybody saved, right? You had a pastor come over to the house, and, and other Christian friends, and they've shared. And, and you've heard solid argument after solid argument, and you know that some of those comments have hit the sweet spot. And you've even seen them sort of soften a little bit. They're still not saved. Anybody know that longing? know that yearning and in those moments we're tempted to think that God doesn't say well we're going through our confession of faith the second London Baptist confession of 1689 this is a confession that Baptist Christians in London sort of used to set down into print what Baptists were committed to what they thought the Bible taught about the faith and about life as Christians We've come to chapter 10 in that statement, which is labeled effectual calling. Effectual calling. 
And we want to think about this, this effective call of the gospel, looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And my prayer is that as we consider from this, this chapter, this section of the chapter, how it is that God saves, that he would encourage us and strengthen us with hope as we think about both our own salvation and his ability to save those we love. Ephesians chapter 1, I'll read from verse 1 to verse 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed, has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose set forth in Christ and for the full time to unite all In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If you're taking notes this morning, I want us to hang our thoughts on three points. Three points. Number one, the Father appoints our salvation in four actions. The Father appoints our salvation. Number two, the Son accomplishes our salvation. The Son accomplishes our salvation. And number three, the Holy Spirit applies our salvation, applies our salvation. Verses 3 to 14 in the Greek, I'm told, is one long sentence of 64 words. Paul would have never passed my English class. (laughs) One long sentence of 64 words, which is broken up for our readability into several sentences in verses 3 to 14. Now, I want to read this again. I want your eye to follow along with me. And I, I want your eye to sort of land on the references to us. Many times he speaks of we, us, our, these plural pronouns referring to the Christian church. Notice now, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed who? Us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ 
according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I point out those pronouns, we, us, our, so that we might escape the cloud that hangs over our eyes sometimes, that sort of makes the scripture about somebody else, somewhere else. Everything that's written here, beloved, if we are in Christ, is about us, is for us. This is spiritual biography. The we, the us, the our is the, the Christian church. It's the Apostle Paul along with all those Christians in the first century. And it's, it's us gathered here this morning at Anacostia River Church. And I want you to notice something else grammatically about this text. You notice that all the things that are said to have been done are in the past tense. They're all accomplished. They're all done. There's not a single command in these several verses. Not one place where God's word here says, you go do. But everywhere, God's word says, this is who you are. What we have here are facts. These are not things that we have to strive to be. These are things that are true of us already, past tense. This is a profound way of shaping, or it ought, how we think about ourselves and we think about our salvation. Notice now who the actor is, though, in this text. The actor is God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each person in the Trinity playing some part in our redemption. He's the actor. We're the benefactors. He does the work. We receive the wealth of these verses. I notice the first thing. The Father appoints our salvation, and he does so in four steps, really, in four actions. You see the first one in verse 3. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I notice several things about this. First of all, the phrase is past tense, as we said before. He has already blessed us this way. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we bargain for. It's not something that we purchase. These blessings are our present reality. And notice the second thing, that these are spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. They're not material blessings in the earthly places. You can recognize here how the prosperity gospel gets it exactly backwards. They teach us that we are to expect every manner of material blessing right now in this life, but the Bible says God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it's every blessing. 
beloved, God does not waste adjectives and adverbs. It's every blessing. What blessing might you has not given us in Christ? What need might you feel that he is not satisfied in his son? What hope, what longing, what, what desire, what, what anticipation might we have in the spiritual life that, that God in Christ has not already blessed us with? Every spiritual blessing, Christian, is yours in Christ. As earthly parents, we sometimes think of our children and we say things like this, we want our children to have a better life than we had. We, we want them to have and enjoy more than we have or enjoy. And so we, we do things like spend too much money on gifts, right? Or, or we, we sacrifice in order that they can go to this camp or have this experience. We don't really have it, but we want them to have it because we want their lives to be better than our lives. Jesus says something like this in, gospel, in the Gospels. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven? Every spiritual blessing given to us in Christ Jesus. Spend some time this afternoon journaling as much of the every as you can. Noting as many of the spiritual blessings as we have in Christ as you can. Find a quiet hour. It'll take you longer than that. But find a quiet hour to press out the distractions and to use the Lord's day to try and contemplate what God has blessed us with in Christ. It will bless your soul. But notice the second thing the Father does to appoint us to salvation. In verse 4 there it says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. As the administrator of our salvation, the Father had some decisions to make. Specifically, the Father decided who He would save, who He would choose, to use the language of verse 4. And it says it does this before the foundation of the world. Long before anything was created, God the Father had you, Christian, in mind. Before the earth was formed, or the skies set, and the stars hung, before ever a river flowed on the planet, God thought about something. He thought about you. He set his affection on you. He set his heart on you. Not, not because of anything in you or anything that you would do. He loved you, the Bible tells us, because he loved you. He chose you because he loved you. His choice is the expression of his love. And it's not a blind choosing. It's not as though God sort of took a deck of cards and threw them in the air and randomly caught the ones that he wanted. It's not as though he put his hand over his eyes and kind of surveyed the room and, and whoever his eyes kind of, his hand kind of landed on, that's who he chose. It wasn't a, a blind choice and, and it wasn't a, a, a game of chance. You know, when I was a little boy and we sort of played games and we had to choose sides. We often did, maybe you all did this, any, many, mighty, mo. I won't finish the rest. If you know it, you know it, right? <laughs> any, many, mighty, mo. No, he's not, he's not sort of doing that randomly some, some little metric for, for choosing us. No. He moved toward us. Came toward us. 
He lavished his love on us. An expression of his love is, would you be mine? I would have you as mine. I would delight in you as mine. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And notice the goal of his choosing. You see it there in verse 4? That we should be holy and blameless before him. What does that mean? Well, our holiness and blamelessness are as sure as his choosing. So when you read the word there, should, don't think possibly, don't think could or might, think this is the definite should. This is what's going to happen. He chose us in the Son so that we would be holy and blameless before him. The text is certain. This will happen. This is happening. We appear before our holy God with the same holiness and perfection as Christ. It's the only way we can stand before him. If he should count our sins against us, who could stand? All our righteous deeds, the prophet tells us, are as dirty rags before God. Our righteous deeds are as dirty rags before God. What a gift this is to be chosen in Christ that we might be holy and blameless before God. It's what makes sense of that tension that's in the letter to the Hebrews. Or read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, to strive for holiness without which no man will see God. But then we read in chapter 10, verse 14, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We live in this in-between of having been sanctified in Christ because we have been chosen in Christ, but but also of growing in our sanctification and and growing in our holiness and growing in our experience of this blamelessness before God. Because he loved us and he chose us. So we work to grow in holiness, but we never worry about growing in holiness. This is what we are appointed to. It's certain. We take necessary actions for holiness, but we deny anxiety about holiness. The Lord has guaranteed it. It's a spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to to those who belong to Christ. The Father does a third thing. He has predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. You see that there in verses 5 and 6? Look at verses 11 and 12. Paul writes there a very similar thing. In him, that is Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The blessing here is being predestined. That word gives us clues as to what it means. Pre, meaning before, destined from the word destiny, that God has beforehand set our destiny, has destined us for something. And notice what it is. He has destined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 5. That's the kind of choosing God had in mind. It's the kind of loving choosing that happens when, when parents love a young boy, young girl, who has no parents, who's orphaned, who needs to be adopted. 
It's the kind of God that God is. Have you ever wondered what God is like? Well, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 10, verse 14, that he's been the helper of the fatherless. Or in Psalm 68, verse 5, he's the father of the fatherless. God is father to his people. A loving father who never abandons, who never forsakes. Who adopts those who, who were not his own, who were, who were lost and estranged from him, who spiritually had no home, who were orphans. And some of us know what this, this ache is like. My dad left when I was 13, unannounced, unapologized for, was there one day, next day he was gone. All he left behind was his little brush that he used for a shaving cream and the fading scent of his aftershave. I never learned to shave, which is why I'm scruffy now. Can't do a decent shine on my shoes. I had to teach myself to tie a tie. And the alpha male games that guys play sometimes, those are the hardest for me. I either overreact or underreact. I'm, I, I'm either given to a, a strong, intense impulse or I'm, I'm given to a kind of passivity. There are a thousand ways in which the absence of my father marks my every day. Haunted by his absence. I don't know that absence with God. It's always present. It's a helper to the fatherless. He's a father to the fatherless. That ache, that emptiness, that hole that, that my natural dad has left, my father more than adequately compensates for. My father in heaven. And that's a hard thing to get your mind around when uh, earthly dad is maybe the most present reality you can put your hand on or the, or the most devastating absence that you can identify. But trust the scriptures when it tells you that God is a father. Unlike any earthly father we have had. Our earthly dads may be bad reflections of him, but he is never made in the image of our earthly fathers. This is who has adopted us. And what an adoption. It's a glorious adoption. He's already signed the paperwork in the blood of his son, but this adoption is a, a waiting to be completed. You know how staggering this is, Christian, that you have been adopted by God? It has cosmic implications. So in Romans chapter 8, verse 19, Paul writes there, For the creation, the entire creation, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The universe is waiting for that day when the curtain is pulled back and all God's children are seen for who they really are as, as God's children. And Paul goes on in verses 21 to 23. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I think about movies like Annie and others like it, great classic literature that, that feature children in orphanages. The longing to be adopted the hoping that the next couple that comes through would, would choose them. 
the desire to have a, to have a family, to have stability, to have a, a place called their own, a place to put their things, a place to, a place to rest. And the Bible's telling us that all of us who are fallen in sin, which is all of us, are like spiritual orphans. And, and even those who have been redeemed, we've been adopted by God, but we're, we're waiting for him to come back to the orphanage of this earth and to finish the adoption. And when that happens and we are seen to be the sons and daughters of God, all of creation then participates in the final redemption. Our bodies are renewed. The creation is renewed. And so all of the earth is longing for, crying out for the father to come and collect his children, to complete the adoption. And this is what we are appointed to, Christian. It's what we wait for. But not with the fretful, doubting, waiting of orphans in Annie, doubting that anyone would love them, but with the strong, confident hope of knowing that we have been loved by God through Christ, his son. And our adoption is near. And our adoption is sure. If you belong to God through Christ, you never need feel like an orphan. You never need feel abandoned. You never need feel neglected. And every instance where you do feel it, let your mind run to God, who is your Father in Christ, and who will never leave you nor forsake you. God appointed our salvation which means he blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He appointed us to this adoption. And then he did a fourth thing. He took an action here at the end of verse 6. You see there, he, he makes reference to this glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. The Father has blessed us with grace. In other words, he's a kind father. He's the kind of father that treats you better than you deserve. He's not a stern father, not hard and harsh with his children. He's gracious, he's gentle, he's kind, even in the presence of our rebellion and our struggles. And before the world began, God determined that he would lavish this grace, this glorious grace upon us. Why? So that he might be praised. So that he might be praised. Think about that orphanage analogy again. You're there, you're in that orphanage, and you're waiting for someone to adopt you. You hear news that someone has completed the paperwork, and someone has adopted you, and, and they're coming to get you soon. How you wait by the door with your bags packed. How you look out the window with eager anticipation. And then that day, they drive up the driveway, and they, they get out of the house, out of the car, and they're the kind of family you had been daydreaming about. And they come and they get you. What's your heart do? What goes on in your soul? Isn't there glad excitement? Isn't there anticipation? Even if you don't know what it's going to mean, what, what life in that home will finally be, you know it's your home and you know that you're going. You know that the thing that you have waited for has finally come to pass and there is erupting in your soul a kind of gladness, a kind of, a kind of praise, a kind of exulting in this good thing that has happened. And the text tells us that he has lavished his grace upon us, that we should praise his glorious grace. 
but we should praise him who has been gracious to us. All that the Father has done to appoint us to salvation winds up bubbling in our hearts as adoration, as praise, as thanksgiving, as delight. Christian, delight in your Father. Delight in God. Praise Him for His grace. Lift up His name for His Extol Him for His generosity to you and I as spiritual orphans. This is for your delight. God is for your delight. Praise Him, the Father who appoints our salvation. But notice, secondly, not only does the Father appoint our salvation, notice our second point, the Son is the one who accomplishes our salvation. We see in verses 7 to 10 just how he does that. First, in Him, that is, in Christ, in the beloved, at the end of verse 6, we have redemption through his blood. His death was God's buyback plan. I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember the days of recycling cans and bottles. Maybe just me and Pastor Matt, and there we go. <laughs> you know, I remember having my little bike and getting with my boys. We'd get little trash bags out the house, and we'd ride through the neighborhood on our bikes, and we'd be picking up old soda cans and beer cans and loading up our bag and finding old empty pop bottles, and we'd get them till we couldn't carry them no more, and we're bouncing on our little steering wheel, and we pedal uptown to the recycling center. And there they would weigh the cans and take the bottles and count the bottles and they'd give us a nickel for every bottle and X amount of cents for every pound of cans. And, and boy, we thought it was payday, man. Get that little $3 and go buy some baseball cards or something. But what were they doing? They were buying back these old dented, dirty, used cans. They were redeeming them and then recycling them and putting them to renewed use. That's the kind of idea that's in this word redemption. That, that through him, we have been redeemed. We have been bought back. Romans 7, 14, we have been sold into slavery to sin. But now through Christ, through his blood, we have been redeemed from slavery to sin. We have been bought back to God. And dented cans though we were, we have been recycled for God's glorious use. Christ accomplished that for us in his death on the cross. And this is, this is marvelous, isn't it? It's through his blood that he buys us back. I took cans to this recycling company and, and they gave me nickels and dimes. And what does Peter say in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19? He says, listen, you've not been redeemed with, with gold and silver, but with something far more precious. You've been redeemed with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been purchased with the purchase cost of nothing less than the blood of the Son of God. And who of us, knowing ourselves and knowing our sin and knowing our rebellion against God, can't look at that statement and think about the blood of the Son of God being poured out for us and almost cry, no, that's too much. That's too high a cost for me. I, I am not worth that. I'm used. I'm wasted. I, I'm not even sure I can be recycled. Who of us knowing our sins and knowing our depravity don't look at that and sort of go, that's too high a price. I wouldn't pay that much for me. Christ speaks to us and says nothing's too high a price 
for the ones I love. I give myself for you in love. My blood is shed for you to make you once again my own, to bring you back to me that we might enjoy each other forever. The Father doesn't shrink back from that price. He appointed the Son to that crucifixion. And Christ looks at the cross and with great agony and and bleeding or sweating drops of blood for the joy that was set before him. He endured the agony of the cross and scorned its shame. So even if we look at it and say, as to my higher cost, Christ doesn't. I remember being in a gym like this in the Cayman Islands. We had a little outreach uh, called Up the Basketball, kind of place where I would take Jeremy and school him in the fundamentals and show him how to play the game. And, uh, you know, we, we had this upward basketball practice, and we had people from the community that sometimes volunteered. I remember this young woman sitting on a stage, not unlike this, all by herself, practice is nearly over, and I feel the sort of promptings of the Spirit. So I go over to introduce myself, and I'm thinking, how can I share the gospel with this lady? I don't really know her. And I, I began, and I opened a conversation with her, and, and I began to tell her about the gospel. She kind of laughs, and she waves her hand at me. She said, oh, baby. She said, God gave up on me a long time ago. What a heartbreakingly wrong thing to think. Sometimes people need some convincing. Not that they are worthy of God's love, but that that he loves them anyway. And nothing is more convincing than the cross of Christ, where God's own son shed his blood for our salvation. And in the ink of blood writes over us, I love you. I've redeemed you. I've bought you back. You're mine. Believe that, beloved. If you're here and you struggle with your sins and the knowledge of your sin, and you struggle with the feeling of unworthiness, and you wonder why anybody would purchase you with two plug nickels, much less the blood of the Son of God, stop listening to yourself and listen to Christ. Listen to the Scripture. Listen to what it's telling you. God's only Son gave himself as a ransom for your sin to buy you back from sin and to make you his own. Yes, you were unworthy. We we're all unworthy. Yes, you were, you were dirty in your sins. We all were. But Christ redeems sinners. The worst of sinners. If we believe in him. Trust in this one who redeems you. But notice what he does further. Not only does he redeem us, but along with this redemption, Jesus accomplishes our salvation by, by purchasing the forgiveness of our sins. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Christ's sacrifice for us is not only voluntary, it's also necessary. It's necessary because of the problem of our trespasses. You see that word there? We have trespassed against God. We all know what that means. You're walking down the neighborhood and you see a house that has a nerve. The owner has a nerve to put a no trespassing sign right there at the edge, the keep off the grass sign. And you're walking by with your dog. You know, where do you let the dog go? You, know, you kick the grass a little bit. That's the sin nature. <laughs> trespassing, crossing the line, breaking the boundaries, 
breaking the amendments. That's what we've done in our sins. God in his word and his law has said, hey, here are the no trespassing signs. Do not go beyond this. Do not transgress. Do not cross this line. And we, all of us, have, have sinned. We've looked at the line. We've walked by the line. The next time we walked a little closer to the line and, and a little closer still until we were straddling the line, until we, till we crossed the line because we told ourselves that straddling the line wasn't breaking the line. But we crossed it, and we fell in our sin, and we deserve God's judgment. And here's the thing about our trespasses. Our trespasses are personal. They're personal, meaning we actually do them, and we do them against a person, namely God. Our sins are not victimless crimes. They are crimes aimed at God. And so God is angry with us because of our sins unless we find forgiveness for our trespasses. Unless in the redemption that Christ has purchased with his blood, our sins have been removed from us. And unless we begin to sing with Horatio Spafford, oh my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole. It is nailed to the cross and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. That's what's bottled in this forgiveness of our trespasses purchased by Christ's blood. Notice the third thing the Son does. He accomplishes our salvation by making known to us the mystery of God's will. Look at me in verses 8 to 11 again. He talks about this grace which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, God has let us in on his secret. In saving us, he's shown us something we didn't know. He's, he's revealed a mystery to us. He's revealed to us his plan for the universe. We've gone from being people who didn't know what life was about and wasn't sure about our future to people who know, in fact, what all of creation is about and how all of creation will end. Namely, that Christ will consummate all things and he will unite in himself all things so that what is said elsewhere in the scripture is evidently seen, that in him we live and breathe and move and, and have our being, that nothing exists apart from the power of his word which upholds the universe and, and all things in the, at the end of time will be brought under Christ and joined together with Christ and even his enemies will be his footstool. We've come to see that the purpose of creation and the purpose of history and the purpose of our lives is to glorify this Christ, to exalt him and to make him known. We once didn't know that. We were blind to that. And so we, we served other masters and we chased other goals and we inevitably came to some point of disappointment. You ever had that feeling where you ask yourself, is this all there is? Or, or said that thing, there's nothing to do? This is the echo of people who have either forgotten or not found this overarching purpose of life. To exalt Christ and to magnify him and to enjoy him and to work to see all things brought into union with him. And Christ has purchased this by his blood. The redemption of 
all things. And beloved, this is our hope. This is our hope. This is our hope. This is our hope. This is our hope that, that what we experience now is not the end. It's not even the main thing. It's not even the, the main feature of life. Our, our great hope is we're going to see all things one day bundled under beneath the bow of God's glory. And his son will hold all those things in his hands. And, and things like shootings on 295 will come to be seen in the light of this purpose. And, and things like crime in our neighborhood will be seen for what they are against the, the backdrop of, of God's glory. And things that we take for granted, like a man and a woman saying, I do, or, or a child being brought into this world. We will come to discover that they have infinite purpose and, and infinite value, that they were, they were making known and will make known the, the glory of the grace of God in his Son. As he takes these disparate parts of our experience and he unites them in himself. And we find there a, an integrity a wholeness of putting together the parts that were broken for us. And we find their purpose and longing and life and meaning. This is ours because Christ has accomplished our salvation. Let's consider one final point and then some applications. The Holy Spirit applies our salvation in one glorious act. That's the main idea of verses 13 and 14. Look there with me. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Everything that God the Father appoints and everything that Christ the Son achieves or accomplishes gets applied by God the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. You see that there in verse 13, the preaching of the gospel, it says, in him, that is in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, what's that? The gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This sealing is, it's not so much like sealing in an envelope as it is stamping with a, with a stamp. Uh, some of you have seen the t-shirts that say, um, Jeremy wears stuff like this, you know, property of the Cleveland Cavaliers. You know, I wouldn't mow, mow my yard in that shirt. But, you know, he <laughs> wears stuff like that, property of the Cleveland Cavaliers. He, he belongs to the Cleveland Cavaliers. You know, he worships that idol called King James. And, and so <laughs> we've seen things like that. Stamp. Or maybe you've gotten some official mail from the district government or some level of government, and it will have a seal on it. Or you go into a notary republic, and, and you've got the notary to affix a seal on, on whatever document you have. So it is in our conversion that when the gospel is preached and it's heard with faith, the Holy Spirit of God, God himself, the third person of the Trinity, he stamps us. He seals us. He, he puts the the imprimatur, the, the badge, the signet ring of heaven on our souls. That, that we now belong to God, that we are his and, and he is ours. That, that comes when the, when the gospel is preached and when we believe. So there are two words there that we really must understand. If we understood nothing else in this sermon, two words there that we really ought to be clear on. And maybe you're new to Christianity and, and be helpful to know this. When Paul says gospel there, he means good news. That's what the word literally means, good news. 
but he's referring to some particular news, news that really changes the universe. And it's this, that even though we were made in God's image and made to worship him, made to live with him, in fact, we left God. We left God in our sin. We broke his laws, as we were talking about before, and we became hostile to God, so much so that it was impossible for us to please God or even to desire to serve God. We, desired, we served ourselves. We went our own way. And for that, we deserve God's judgment. We deserve God's wrath. But God loved us, as we've been talking about. And in his love, he sent his son into the world. And Christ Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, took upon himself our human likeness. And he lived a, a, a life for 33 years in our human flesh. He was fully God and fully man. And he came into the world to do two things on our behalf. Number one, to provide to God the obedience we denied God. And so all that God required in his law, Christ satisfied. And that's how he becomes our righteousness. But number two, to die the death that we deserve to die because of our sins. So all of the punishment that we deserve because of our sin, Christ took it upon himself on the cross. The wrath of God was poured out upon him, and he was judged in the place of sinners. So that all the anger of God toward you and me was being satisfied on the back of And God raised him from the dead, showing that in the resurrection that there was eternal life to be had. And in the resurrection that that Christ's sacrifice had been accepted by God. And that anyone who believes in Christ would be justified with God. Declared righteous, forgiven of sins, adopted as children of God, and have the inheritance of eternal life. And enjoy the glory of God forever. That's the good news. And that good news requires a response, which brings us to the second word there, believe. We must not only hear this gospel, but we must also believe this gospel, which is to say we must trust in this gospel. Not just hear it and agree to it intellectually, but but there must be a giving over of ourselves to this truth. We must declare that it's true. And, and, And we must base our souls and our hopes of eternal life on the truth of this gospel. And believing that it's true and believing that Jesus is who he said he is, the Lord and Savior, the only Lord and Savior, and the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world, we then follow him in the obedience that comes from faith. We turn from sin and we trust and follow Jesus. That's when the Spirit seals us. God himself comes into our lives and stamps our lives as his. The question is, beloved, do you believe this gospel? Do you trust this Christ? For if you do, you will forever be known as belonging to God, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now notice what verse 14 goes on to tell us there in Ephesians 1, that the Holy Spirit has become our guarantee. He's become our deposit, if you will, of our salvation, of our inheritance, until the day that it actually comes. In other words, God has given us someone in the Holy Spirit to keep us, to guarantee our salvation until that salvation is made complete. God himself, in the form of his Spirit, keeps us. Now that word guarantee 
You might have a translation that says something like he is the earnest deposit. You know what that means. And back in the day when Matt and I were little boys, we used to have something called layaway. Anybody know what that is? <laughs> this is before credit cards, right? This is back in the day when you go to a department store and you see some things you wanted to buy and you didn't have the cash to buy it all at that point, so you would put it on layaway. Right? So you go to the back of the store where they had this little office and they would write down the things that you had. It's before computers too, if you can imagine that. They would write down the things that you wanted to purchase and tally it up. And then you had to do something. You had to leave a deposit. And not only would you leave that deposit, but then you'd have a payment plan. So every week or every other week, every paycheck, you'd come back and pay a little bit on it until you got it out of layaway. And some of us grew up on layaway. <laughs> that deposit which starts the purchase and guarantees the purchase in layaway is akin to what's happened to us spiritually. We've been laid away by God and he's given us a deposit, the Holy Spirit. And that deposit will keep us until the day of redemption. If you're in Christ, there is no prospect of you ever being lost there's no prospect that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are all omnipotent, will fail saving you. They're not going to stumble. Their hands aren't going to get slippery. They're not going to forget, oh, I was supposed to be keeping Peter until the day comes, or I was supposed to be keeping um, Jahil until he comes. You know, God's not going to sort of slip and say, ooh, I forgot about Stephanie. <laughs> no, no, no. You were on his mind before the world began. You were on his mind when he sent his son into time. And you are on his mind even now as his spirit lives in you to keep you until you receive what he has purchased for you by his son's blood. God the Son and God the Holy Spirit all work for our salvation. And all that we need to be his people and all that we need to be saved is in that little phrase that runs throughout this text. It's in Christ. It's in him. It's in the beloved. Did you see that as we went through the text? Over and over again, every benefit, every blessing is in Christ. It's in him. It's in the beloved. All that we need for eternal life is bound up in the Son of God so that he who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son does not have life. Make sure you have the Son. Trust in Christ. And how do we bring this home? This, this has the risk of being abstract theology, sort of living up in our heads. That's not a bad place for it to live, actually. In our heads that we actively remember this, that we actively hold on to this, that we not forget this, that we preach this to ourselves, that we are loved by God, saved by the Son, sealed by the Spirit, that we preach that to ourselves in our waking moments and preach that to ourselves in the workplace and preach that to ourselves as we lie down at night, refusing to drift off to sleep, but to, but to sleep as an act of faith, believing that the God who saved you will keep you through the night. It's not a bad thing to put this in your head and to keep it there. But let me give you one other simple application as we close. It's the application that Paul makes in verses 15 to 23. You see how 15 begins with for this reason? 
because I have heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Notice what Paul does that I want to commend as a practice for us. A couple things. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Here's the practice. Pray for each other. Pray for each other. ARC, let us be the kind of family that fervently prays for each other in light of God's work in us through the gospel. You see there in verse 16, he prays with thanksgiving that they are, they are believers. But not only that, he goes on to pray and ask the Father of glory that, that they might, we might gain something, that we might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. And our eyes would be, of our hearts would be enlightened. Why? That we may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? In other words, that we pray for one another that we might abound in life in hope. And we might know what riches we have in Christ. Maybe it's just me. But from time to time, day to day, I need to be reminded of the hope that I have. And from time to time, day to day, I need to be reminded of the riches that are mine in Christ. Let's do that for each other. Let's pray that for each other, and let's speak that to each other. One of the most wonderful little things that happens every morning in, in my day, so we've been back to Washington, D.C., and I've had the privilege of meeting up pretty regularly with, with Andrew Nichols. Is Andrew asked me a wonderful question. He says, um, being Andrew, being a little bit cheeky, he says, I, I know you're a great pastor at all, but is anybody in your life holding you accountable? It's a great pastor to ask, a, a great question to ask a great pastor. Isn't it? He says, anybody you sort of share your life with and speaks into your life and whom you encourage daily while it's still day? I scratch my head a little bit. I say, Matt, when he feels like it. <laughs> and I answered honestly. I said, actually, brother, since moving back here, I've not had that. And he very kindly offered to me, why don't we do this with each other? I said, sure. So he has a little code, right? So every day he sends me an email, and the code has a number and a letter, either one, two, or three, A, B, or C. Uh, one means... Uh, so the, one, the numbers have to do with purity, and the letters have to do with our devotional life. So one means, by God's grace, yesterday was a day of purity. Two and three means that we need to pick up the phone and figure out what happened, right? A, B, and C, A is, I had, whatever is for us, uh, a, a good time in God's word, a, a faithful time in spiritual devotion. B, I kind of had a power bar, right? It wasn't all the time that I would like them spending the Word, but I had some time in the Word, and, and maybe there were some, some circumstances that, you know, sort of pinched in on that time. And C was, I, I didn't read my Bible, I didn't pray, so on and so forth. So every day, Andrew sends me an email, and greets me in the morning, and he gives me just that number and that letter. You know, 1A, one 1B, one 1C. One 
And that's been such light shining onto my life and such encouragement every day. And, and it doesn't work a guilt in me. It works a gladness in me. I, you know, there are days where I write back to him and say, I was one C today, brother. You know, I didn't have time in the Word today. And there's no condemnation. There's, there's, there's encouragement and, and there's grace. Uh, however you would do this, I, I think probably all of us should have this in our lives. Someone who encourages us, keeps us accountable, has a way of checking in with us daily. That spurs us on toward love and good deeds. Let's pray these things for each other and let's, let's encourage each other in hope. And let's, let's, let's end on this last thing. You see it there in verse 20, 21. He talks about this power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Can we also remind each other of Christ's power and Christ's rule? And remind each other that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us who believe. Now that may not sound like anything profound until we look up one day feeling powerless. Until we look up feeling like, I can't do this thing that I know Christ has called me to do. Or I can't stop this thing that I know Christ has called me to stop. That, that might sound abstract and ethereal until we bring it down to meet our real life and our real decisions and our real challenges and we stop and we're reminded and we pray in remembrance that the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us who believe. And that same Christ is a living Christ who right now rules over all things principalities and powers and thrones and dominions, all of those things are beneath his feet. He is our Lord. And you see the end of the verse there, the end of the chapter? He does all of this for the sake of the church. You ever thought about that? His rule is for your blessing. All the power he exercises in heaven and on earth it's for your benefit. It's for your prosperity. It's for your happiness. It's for your sake. Let us be reminded that the Father appoints us to salvation. The Son accomplishes our salvation. The Spirit applies our salvation. And this is for our hope and for our joy. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would keep us from being abstract theologians. That you would keep us from merely holding in our heads Bible truths and doctrinal truths. And that you would, Lord, work these truths, Lord, not only into our heads, but work it into our hearts. So that we might believe the truths that we know. And work it into our hands so that we might act upon the truths that we believe. 
Give us that kind of integrity where our head and our hearts and our hands line up, where we confess the truth and believe it in our hearts, and Lord, stake our lives upon it in faithful obedience. Father, we stagger at what you have done for us, how you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing, how you have chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We stagger at how you have predestined us to adoption of sons and lavished your grace upon us. And Lord Jesus, it was you who through your blood redeemed us and, and purchased the forgiveness of our trespasses and, and has opened our minds and our hearts and our eyes to see the cosmic plan of God. And Holy Spirit, we praise you for when the gospel was preached, we were dead, but you raised us to life. And you gave us, O oh Lord, repentance and faith that we might come to Christ and, and walk with him until we receive our inheritance. And Holy Spirit, we praise you for you. You sealed us on that day. You stamped us as belonging to God. And you will keep us until we are with God. And we praise you for all that you have done and we pray that you would cause this to be the basis of our assurance before you, of our hope in you, of our confidence in you, and that day to day, we would encourage each other in hope and rest upon your power. And we ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We praise God for how he has lavished his grace upon us.